Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. 163. This is the post Mr. Olympia Big Rami episode. Steve Shmi here and the mobster joining me. How's it going? Good. Let's uh, smash this one out of the park while it's current and hot, people. So, guys, let's go over to 2021 Mr. Olympia results. We're going to go over those. We're going to talk about Big Rami. We've Already done a couple podcasts on him, but he's once again the champion. So we're going to do another one. He's worth as many podcasts as necessary. He's earned it. And then we're going to talk about his steroid cycle. We're going to talk a little bit also about Mr. Olympia and kind of brush you up on that. So it's going to be a fun podcast. So first off, let's go over the top six finishers. William Bonac with 60 points. Nicholas Walker, 49 points. Hunter Labrada, 40 points. Hadi Chupan, 29 points. Brandon Curry, 19 points. And it was a very close win for Big Rami, who got 12 points. So really, really tight. The year prior, Mobster, Rami was 13 points and Curry was 28 points. So it was a little bit of a wider number and then phil heath was really close third at 31 and hottie was a really close fourth with 32 and then you had william bonac and then akeem williams so you know most most of these same classic characters nicholas walker jumped up to fifth place and then you had william bonac who dropped one spot down to six so and he went from 48 points to 60 points and then Hunter Labrada jumped up from eighth point, eighth place with 78 points. And he jumped up all the way to fourth with 40 points. So he did, did much better as well. And then you had, of course, you had Hottie going from fourth to third. So it was a very interesting uh, Mr. Olympia. Um, what do you think? Was there any surprises here? Maybe And talk a little bit about the point system because – in most sports, the more points you get, the more you win. So the points, explain how the point system works and explain your thoughts on, on these uh, finishes. Any surprises? Right, so let's deal with the points first. The point system in bodybuilding for competition, but interestingly, slightly different for rankings to help you qualify for the Mr. Olympia. So, for example, Rami would have the least amount of points, which is a schedule, of course, that the lower number of points is the higher the placing. Uh, and, and that's it in, in a nutshell. What they do is if you've got a big competition of 20 or 30 athletes, and sometimes we've had that 20, 20 odd athletes for the Olympia, uh, they've simplified it. So everybody from 15 on down is 16th place. Uh, sometimes people like to know if that's different and we'll try to look at the scorecards. But for argument's sake, that's pretty much keeps it simple. The other thing that they do with regards to points, and they've done for years with these kind of competitions, and there's little tweaks here and there. But uh, the last time I looked, they throw out the high and low scores. So, for example, you shouldn't get people over-clicking on favourites or, or, or over-marking someone. And, and, and 
a, a head judge can come in and throw out the high and low scores quite easily, especially if it looks like there's things not quite working how they should. And, and perhaps, obviously, judges make mistakes and there's little tweaks that need to be done there. That's their judge's job. So that, that's the thing. You also typically have someone else who tallies the scores separately, independent of the judges and independent of the head judge, and then you go over and everybody checks it together. So that's something. What is interesting, funny enough, and I looked this up at the same time, is that the it's there's a different way of scoring for qualifying. So some of the lads we know in this competition, uh, role is a good example, didn't qualify until the last minute. Other people, like uh, James Holland said, qualified last year. And, and it was very much a case of, right, so how does that work? Does that person have the least amount of points coming in over the season? For, for example, entering four competitions or perhaps winning four competitions, they only have four points. So no, that scores slightly differently. And then, of course, that's, that way of scoring things differently can, can confuse people, and then you get arguments about the scoring system. As far as uh, surprises, I mean, this is one of those things. We know bodybuilding is very much a matter of opinion. It's a bit like the perfection in ice skating or gymnastics or something like this sometimes, insofar as we have our own personal favourites, the, the kind of build that we prefer. Judges are human. They do the same thing again. And I will agree with some of the comments that we've seen online and other podcasts already in that Rami's condition, overall shape, etc. last year was slightly better. One of the comments that's been made is that Rami uh, looked like he did a couple of years ago when he was playing second and third and fourth and so on. And that Brandon Curry certainly in the pre-judging looked like the better overall bodybuilder in terms of condition. So, interestingly enough, Bonnick down at sixth place, having dropped, as you say, I think it was 49 to 60 points, you said. Um, was his arriving late uh, an issue? We, I think he was one of those guys. We've talked about this before, you and I, Steve, when we say getting the overseas athletes into America settled with the right food, with the access to decent gyms, potentially on-site in Florida, as it was this year, back to Las Vegas next year. Um, having those issues resolved, for example, Hadi and Rami, both in the country for several weeks ahead of the Mr. Olympia, makes a difference. And Bonnack, I believe he was, again, bearing in mind, he's only coming from Europe, had that issue. So he's only arriving in the country, I think, just over a week ahead of schedule. And we know that that makes a difference. Flying makes a difference. Stress makes a difference. So there's that as well. Um, what else are we looking at here in terms of uh, places, et cetera? Remind me. Let's have a quick look. Okay, so one of the things that I made a note of and something else that some had been thrown out there as an opinion was sponsorship. Does sponsorship at the Olympia with the, for example, the screens behind the athletes throwing up sponsor names while they're competing, while they're judging, does that affect potentially the outcome? And a good example of that where the argument has, has been thrown in was for uh, Hunter Labrada. Uh, Labrada was a sponsor. Uh, Rami this year sponsored by Enhanced, for example, Enhanced Labs. So you go, is that an argument right there? Equally, and you and I are going to touch on this a little bit more in a minute, where we talk about the Middle Eastern influence. And for example, and this is one of those things where bodybuilding doesn't seem to be biased. There are lots of arguments about racism in certain sports and who wins and so on and so forth. We, we've had black athletes winning, or Afro-Caribbean, in, in the case of Brandon Curry. We've had other uh, 
Afro-Caribbean again with regards to the ethnicity, for example, of Ronnie Coleman. So, and now, of course, we're getting in the top three uh, the same again and uh, two Middle Eastern athletes. So bodybuilding especially doesn't seem to have that as an issue. But again, arguably, support from the Middle East, that which included Brandon training out in oxygen again, uh, the Middle East and Asian market influence for overall uh, a, a potential income. Uh, and a lot of athletes going out to train there. If you're a shake and you've got a great deal of money, you and I discussed some an athlete before. I believe I stayed uh, amateur for years because quite simply was being employed by one of the uh, royal families at a, a wage or a salary that was equivalent to winning the Mr. Olympia. So it's interesting to look at that kind of stuff and see how it goes or whatever else. But like I said, bodybuilding is really one of those you pick who you like and then everybody disagrees and that happens all the time I mean, because as a as, as a passionate uh supporters for example of Remy uh, coming from Egypt it's not unusual if you post a comment online your in your uh, Instagram feed or whatever else disagreeing with perhaps with Remy's win to get death threats in Arabic etc etc so it's 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 a it's a fun thing for us to do I think you and I especially with other sports football here and pro football, uh, American football in the States where you are, the armchair uh, opinions can be quite vi uh, vigorous, shall we say. And so it's one of those things. I would have chosen Brandon myself based on the prejudging for sure. Um, but it's been said again and again and again, if you're already a Mr. Olympia, uh, it's very difficult to get past that and you need a kind of knockout blow. So we've seen that a couple of times, Ronnie and Jay Cutler, for example. Ronnie was okay, but Jay was just on point the year that he took that title off of, off of uh, Ronnie. So it's yeah. very much that kind of stuff. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, and three, it looks like three out of the top 13 finishers were from Egypt, including mm -hmm. Big Rami. And then you had one from um, who was Persian, who was Iranian. So yeah. that's four in the top 13. So yeah, so we're seeing a trend, and what's interesting about Big Rami is even though he's from Egypt, he actually lives and trains in Kuwait, and a lot of pro bodybuilders now, they are in that part yep. of the world. Uh, Dubai is very big hotspot with, with bodybuilding, and, you know, that's a lot of that has to do with, you know, it's one of those things where that's the sport that that's the sport that they've gravitated to. That's a sport that they've done well in. It's just the, the physiques, you know, from the, from the Middle East region, it's that size, it's the stockiness, it's that gift for bodybuilding that allows them to do very well. They're not going to be great basketball players. They're not going to be necessarily great soccer players. They're not the fastest, you know, and they don't have the endurance. So there's a lot of factors in play here um, as why uh, bodybuilding is growing. Also the laws, the laws are very uh, loose when it comes to steroids over there. So it's not like you go to jail for, for using, for buying or, or using steroids. So I think those factors contribute to why you see bodybuilding growing in that part of the world. And then big with the big Rami influence, you're going to start seeing a lot more of this because people are like, damn, maybe I do have the genetics and the ability to do this. So yeah, chime in that mobster, and we're going to get into the big, big, big Rami's uh, background. 
Yeah, I mean, it's something you and I have discussed uh, off air and, and indeed on the forums is this that the, the Asian and specifically the Middle Eastern markets and the support. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things here uh, which differ perhaps from, from the Europe and from the American stuff and the West, so to speak. So, for example, it's a very macho, uh, male orientated, uh, women might say misogynist environment. So, men specifically are fated especially if you're an athlete. Uh, it, it's, it's a thing for, I believe, especially in the Middle East, again, you, you show your support in this particular way and something that you and I are aware of, which not everybody that listens to this podcast is aware of, for the support from the government, which we've discussed before. We talked about um, Rami's win last year involved three to 400 people at the airport, a double-decker bus with a, a laminate wrap with his face on it. And uh, essentially went to see the president. I think he went to see the Mitchell Sport and stuff like that. This stuff doesn't happen in America. It doesn't happen in the UK. A bodybuilder, I, I think, so, I'm trying to think with Doreen Yates visited Downing Street or not. I think he did after he won. So he wasn't fated with a Tony Blair or whoever was in charge when he was winning the Mystery League. He wasn't invited to Downing Street or Buckingham Palace as a top professional bodybuilder. It's only, I believe, as his influence in bodybuilding overall, and after he retired, that he was fated in any way at all, you know, Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff. So the, the Asian market, and specifically the Middle East, we talked about, I think there's a combination of factors here, right? So as you've already discussed, the laws allow bodybuilders there and any supporters of bodybuilders there to have very reasonable access to drugs. It's not, it's not we, we, I think even in, in, in the, the Muslim faith, it's kind of almost allowed versus alcohol, which is not. So it's kind of a strange situation there. But And of course, the money. Quite simply, if you've got an amazing gym that's worth several millions of pounds, several millions of dollars, it's easy access to over-the-counter pharmaceutical uh, drugs, peptides, etc., And then a supportive influence where, for example, in Iran, where, where uh, Hadi comes from, um, they will cook you food in the gym. It is something that they want to do. It's almost like my gift to you is to cook you this steak and God allows me to do this for you. And I want my faith, my support, my family. I can afford to cook you this steak. My family can afford to pay for this steak. And this will be my gift to you to help you win. Imagine going to your local gym, Steve, training. And then the gym says, Steve, you're great. We love you. Here's, here's a protein meal before you leave, as opposed to you having to do this stuff yourself or meal prep or having a shake or whatever. That kind of support, that level of support. And then, of course, the guys, which includes um, second place Brandon, going out there for three, four months at a time, uh, Roly, et cetera, going out there for three, four months at a time. And it, where, where we've talked about it before, it's almost like being a prize horse, a prize, a, a stallion, insofar as that everything is done for you. If you haven't eaten a meal and a, and a person that's helping you comes to the room, where you're crashing and you're sleeping between training and everything else. The guys are pretty much video games and talking to their families online via Zoom. And then the guy will come to the room and say, oh, you haven't eaten meal number four. Don't worry, that's, that's down there. Make sure you get a fresh one in the next 10, 15 minutes. That kind of vibe. That level of support has to make a difference. And of course, we're talking about genetic superiors again. So you have this ability to recover, great access to drugs, huge support, fantastic food. I mean, Steve, how can you not do well in that environment? Your only issue is perhaps getting homesick. That's it. And, 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 and I'm assuming 
especially with sponsorship support, etc., as well, and fulfilling your obligations there. You're essentially getting paid to train to eat in just about the best environment as possible. And damn if it ain't hot as well. You're not suffering with the cold and wet and windy weather. You're you're it, it, it seems sort of what we used to think of the ideal back down in California and Venice Beach, as good a time as it's possibly to have and a great environment as possibly to have. And that seems to be a massive or making a massive difference. You also refer to the stature. Rami's on the big side, but most Middle Eastern bodybuilders are, are the right height for bodybuilding, 5'8", 5'9", 5'10". And something I made a note of was, I believe there was an interview done with Hadi's uh, 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 coach, where, no, actually it was with an Egyptian athlete, and the Egyptian athlete turned around and said that the influence that Rami had had meant that this year, through all the divisions and all the classes, I think it was either 17 or 19 Middle Eastern and or Egyptian athletes were attending the competition. That's across all the classes. That is a large percentage of uh, Egyptians. For Even if you said there were several hundreds of athletes, that is a lot of Egyptians, a lot of Middle Eastern athletes competing across the class, way, way more than last year. I think last year the figure was like four or five or something like that. So it's tripled and, and then some. And that's the influence, again, that the, the Middle Eastern, the Asian market is having on bodybuilding as a whole. It's good even for the American, European, Western market because it means more money is coming in, more people are competing, bigger competitions. Back to you, Steve. So let's get over Rami's early life and how he kind of grew into bodybuilding. He was born September 1984. He was born into a family of fishermen. He worked as a fisherman until 2010. And then he met up with a guy named Bader Bodai, who was owner of Oxygen Gym. And with his help, and also with Dennis James' help, professional bodybuilder, he stepped on stage 2012, Amateur Olympia, at 286 pounds, and he won his IFBB Pro card. He was given the nickname Big Rami for putting on over 100 pounds just after two years of weight training. So no doubt the guy had a gifted ability to put on size. What a what an amazing opportunity to do that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't have that opportunity around the world. They never get the opportunity to lift weights or play sports and all that stuff. So he found the right person who let him in the right way. So from there, uh, once he turned pro, he got uh, in 2013, Mr. Olympia, already up to eighth place, top 10, a very impressive. He also won the New York Pro Championship that year. Next year, he won it again, New York Pro Championship, and he got seventh at the Mr. Olympia. 2015, he got first at the Arnold Classic Brazil, and he got fifth at Mr. Olympia. So he was really on a trajectory to improve. And the next year, he got fourth at Mr. Olympia. And then in 2017, Mobster, guess what happened? He got second at Mr. Olympia. So each year he improved. He couldn't beat Phil Heath that year. He got sixth the next year. And then in 2020, he came back with a vengeance, first place. And then in 2021, once again, first place. So we'll have to see if he decides to go for a three-peat next year or if Brandon Curry wants to get his revenge on him. We'll have to see. Brandon Curry 
may fall back and we may see some of these other young guns like Hottie Chupon and Nicholas Walker and those guys make their way back up and watch out also for Akeem Williams. He also made top 10. He was in ninth place this year and last year he was in the top six. So watch out for him as well. Um, Mom, sir, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I've, I've noticed in 2017 he was working with Chris Cormier. And in fact, what's happened, as we're well aware, and I've touched on it at the beginning, the, in the last couple of years he's been working with uh, Dennis James, who's still a lump, who's, as we say over in the UK, still looks like a bodybuilder. And in fact, he self said that he doesn't seem to be able to get under 240 pounds. He's missed meals, he doesn't do uh, supplements, and he's still a big old boy himself. But one of the things I think Dennis did, possibly more than Chris did, and certainly more, it would seem, than, than the uh, people helping him in uh, Kuwait, was that in uh, Dennis basically wasn't letting him get away with any shit, as to put it crudely. So, you know, sometimes what can happen, in fact, let me just deal with the drugs very, very quickly. I've been in a fortunate position when I was kicking ass in my competitions, what people like to support a winner. And so the, the, the idea is sometimes with regards to drugs, whether it's uh, supplements, drugs, uh, training equipment, et cetera. And this possibly is something that Rami said as well, again, in, in, in Kuwait, where, oh, it, oh, this guy's good. He's good. I think he's going to win. Let me give him a gift. Let me give him some steroids. Let me give him some bits, of, you know, peptides, whatever else. And that's just that's just as a winner, just as somebody they think is going to win. Hence, possibly, he was already working in that gym when he went from 200 to 280 pounds and was starting to see it as an Olympian, starting to see as a future champion. So there's an issue there. And that particular result, what I think happened perhaps around that time, and something, and you and I discussed the idea that he might be distracted, which I think he was for the first three months of his 2020 win, is that he was allowed to distract the distractions. He was allowed to take allowed to take his foot off the gas a little bit in Kuwait. And going over to America last year with a shorter period of time, and coming to America this year with a longer period of time under Dennis James, arguably should have. And we can get into the weather, you know, as I said already, whether he should have won or shouldn't have won and arguing about Brandon Curry, etc. Dennis doesn't let him take his foot off the gas. Dennis is on him, no, you know, when he, from when he's awake in the morning to when he goes to sleep at night time. And one of the comments last year we saw when he was in better condition, arguably, uh, came to the States ahead of time and uh, was talking about posing sometimes three, four, five times a day, sometimes 20 minutes, and I believe up to an hour towards the end. And, and complaining about it. And Dennis says, do you want to be number one? Do you want to win? What do you want to be the winner? Then you're going to pose. And that was it. There was no argument. And maybe that's the relationship that you need. You need, it's like kind of something out of the Rocky film. You need, you need your fellow in your corner who does not let up. He's on your back 24, seven, 365. He doesn't bullshit you. He doesn't say you look good when you're done. If none of that happens. And he makes you get to the very edge of that place that you need to be in order to win. And I suspect that Dennis James versus the Chris Cormier was a change 2017 to 2020, 2020, 2021. Perhaps again, uh, you know, there was this, we can talk about perhaps a tiny bit of water underneath the skin, that little bit of a polish that was missing and so on and so forth. But again, it's one of those things. I mean, we, we you and I, and, and many of our listeners, I'm sure, will always discuss for fun, the ideal situation to make someone who has the potential to be a great athlete how do they become a great athlete? What is it? You and I, for example, said it's very rarely a rich person. Poor people seem to have more hunger. So then you've got that. Then you need your genetics. You really need a coach. 
that doesn't fuck around. And I think Dennis is there. You really need, uh, as in Ch uh, Chad Nichols, for example, one of, if not the prep coach in terms of that side of things, in terms of what we call special supplements, as a bodybuilder sometimes euphemistically, we call them BEDs, of course. Uh, you need someone who's on point there. And that, that combination of factors should have you super duper lean, super duper in shape in the country ahead of time and looking and acting and, and being a champion. Something very, very quickly, and in fact, reminded me of this element of being a champion. A lot of athletes at the Mr. Olympia, especially in, in the um, press conference, where they this year they were brought out on stage in pairs and twos and threes, and, and a lot of the athletes were wearing the jackets that are provided for the athletes. But a couple of athletes, two athletes specifically, that stuck in my mind, was Brandon Curry and our winner, Rami. And they both turned up suited and booted, Steve, looking like champions, not wearing a hoodie, not, not covered in sponsor logos or whatever else, but coming there like professionals. Super lovely ties, silk suits, great leather shoes, and acting like men that had their business ready to rock and roll. And of course, showing you nothing of their physiques, leaving no special peaks. We've seen next to nothing of Rami in the run up to the Olympia, wearing a t-shirt, people trying to guess whether he's vascular, whether he's lean, whether his waist was small, covered up with maybe just his arms, his forearms and, and the bottom of his uh, upper arms exposed. And that was it. There was no 10 million photographs on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. What do you think, Steve? All right. Yep. I I definitely, yeah, I, I agree with that, Mobster. That's good analysis for sure. Um, so, you know, let's talk a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about his social media. And Mobster, tell us about his training, because everyone wants to know what kind of training this guy is doing. Is it anything different from a year ago? Um, basically, He's got 3.6 million followers just on Instagram. So, okay. and if you look at his Instagram page, he's got pictures of himself. He's got pictures, inspirational stuff. He's got pictures of food. Got a lot of followers, especially from the Arab world. You look at the comments, a lot of them are in Arabic. And so he's got a huge following all around from, from Turkey to uh, the UAE to Saudi Arabia to, to Jordan, all the way west into Morocco and Egypt. So he's got a huge following across the Middle East. So I'm sure his followers will be continuing to grow. He's becoming a legend, you know, um, and, and that part of the world. And he's becoming a household name. We talked about it on the previous podcast we did, how, much, how important that is. Another thing that's interesting, too, when you have that many followers, you have that many... That's an opportunity from a business standpoint. These supplement companies need to start hiring people who speak the language, who can travel to that part of the world, because there's a huge market in that part of the world for bodybuilding coming up. So if you're a supplement company and you're not getting in on that, you're basically missing the boat and you're going to regret it. You're going to get in and five years from now, 10 years from now, you're going to look back and be like, what the heck happened here? Because bodybuilding in the United States is not growing but over there, it's growing like crazy. So if you ask a normal person in the United States who won Mr. Olympia, 
They're not going to know who won the Olympia. No one cares. You know what people were doing on Sunday? They're watching the NFL. They're watching football. That's what people do in America. We don't care about bodybuilding, but over there, he's a household name. You ask people who won Mr. Olympia, they'll know. They'll know who won Mr. Olympia. So your supplement company better get on the action over there. You better be hiring people who, who speak the language and who can translate. I'll, I'll jump in here very quickly, Steve. Uh, the, the markets, Steve and I talked about this in a pre-show. If you're not in this market, you're missing a trick. You really are. China with all the goods that we're getting into into the West, America, Europe, and, and here in the UK, is monumental, even with the restrictions of COVID, et cetera, at the time of this podcast has been recorded, easing up just a little bit. It's still taking time to get over here. However, it means that there's more income for the Chinese producers, for the fellas working in the factories and making those businesses, more Chinese billionaires. And then, of course, you've got India and Pakistan and, of course, Arabia. And at the... the Big, biggest uh, middle class in the world, I believe, is in India. Something ridiculous like educated, college, etc. 800 million, some stupid number. If the US is around 350, 360, the UK, I think, is about 70 million. And then you've got a middle class or an educated class in India of 800 million, Steve. So if you just, just run the numbers, if it's 10% the exercise and it's one-tenth of the 10% that are considered themselves bodybuilders, you're talking about across those two countries, it's two and a half billion, you're still talking about a potential market of 210 million people lifting weights and thinking of themselves as bodybuilders who need sports supplements. So you need to get into that. And that's how big this market is. Training. Okay, so there's two factors here. There is an interesting thing which I've seen about the Arabian side of stuff back in Kuwait again in terms of the training. It tends towards, in an ideal situation, and especially if the man is hungry, which I'll get onto in a second, of a slightly higher volume in terms of repetition range and probably around 60-70% of your one rep max. Ideal bodybuilding, and it's typically 8-12 to 12 reps and about 80% of your one rep max. But for example, when you look at some of the workout routines that have been discussed and, and, and revealed, it's 15, 16, 17 repetitions. So it's a higher repetition. You're building up a decent muscle fiber stuff. And perhaps obviously the uh, support that PEDs give you allow for that kind of training with that moderately high percentage of your one rep max uh, producing capillary expansion. So you're getting those kind of big blown up bodybuilder type muscles they might look a little bit soft. And then you rely on perhaps diuretics, et cetera, which we'll get to in a little while to dry the athlete out. So there's that. What's also, as I said before, the, um, if you look, as we discussed in the previous pod podcast, where what Dennis was doing to Rami was he wasn't letting up again. So there was, I think one that stuck in my mind was the tricep workout where it looked like they planned to do eight or 12 reps. But I think it was one of those, my coach is bullshitting me because as soon as he got the 12 reps, it was another four reps and Rami was in pain and you could see that he was in pain and they went, they did a drop set and then they went straight over to something else and hit another angle. I think it was some sort of cable one arm press down or uh, push down, something like this. And it was one thing after another and, and the sweat was coming off Rami. The veins were popping on him, but of course he was doing what needed to be done. So, it was interesting in that particular way. I think if you look at the leg training, for example, Rami uses some really, really big weights on some of the leg exercises, but I'm reminded of the Roly workout, Roly Winkler, similar workouts, possibly because we're using a similar coach 
I read in, in uh, wait again, where again, it's one thing after another. So there's giant sets, there's drop sets. And again, we're talking about pre-competition training here, Steve. On that, and something that you and I have discussed before, is, is the potential, which we did in the previous show, I think something that might have harmed Rami's condition this year a little bit was the sheer amount of things that he had to do as a quote-unquote famous Arabian-Egyptian bodybuilder. And all the things that we've previously discussed already is that there were so many opportunities, so many things to do, that sometimes Mr. Olympias will take a few weeks, even up to three months off Ronnie and Dexter Jackson, for example. But one of the things I said to you, what I thought was going to happen to Remy, and I believe did happen to Remy, is that there was so much going on, so many things to do. I think it was longer than three months. So the argument about training here might well be that you need, as a top athlete, doing the absolute best you possibly can in your chosen sport, a certain amount of time off when you peaked, a certain amount of easing off the gas before you go back at it again. I'm thinking perhaps Rami had a little bit too much. We didn't really see anything coming out of, uh, in terms of the news, etc. Rami for probably four, maybe five months. And it's only with the late competitions, the closest, the, the Olympia and the Arnold were together, etc., that we started to see a build-up of the excitement. We started to see a build-up of interest in the competitions. And I'm going to say that was about five months. So that's, that's seven months from winning last year's Mystery Olympia till we started to see photographs, till we started to see training. Think about the opportunities here that we've already discussed. We're saying about the Asian market. We're saying about the Arabian market, China, etc. If, if you're the Mr. Olympia, just how many, many opportunities, how many interviews, how many reporters, how many TV uh, discussions did you go on? How many different companies wanted your, uh, to see you and offer sponsorship deals or something like this. How many paid viewings did you go? How many different gyms do you get to visit, etc.? Sometimes too many, sometimes too much. Did that make a difference? That's a, that's a point I'm going to make. Did that make a difference? Perhaps Dennis James doing his absolute best, Chad doing his absolute best, and the argument that one of the comments, I think, come out of RX, he, he looked his absolute best only the last five minutes of the show as that last bit of water came out. So it's one of those things. Did his physique look different? Did he have the condition he could have done? And I think one of those things, obviously, and this is a personal comment again, is what us wanting an athlete like Rami with his potential, with his physique, winning the Mr. Olympia, we want to see the best of the best of the best. And of course, every so often, and nearly every Mr. Olympia has had this, You've got years when you go, oh, that was amazing. He took the game to a new level. And another year is, oh, that was close. Someone else could have won and stuff like that. And that's even if we're a fanboy. That's even if we're, our preference is for Rami as Mr. Olympia. Back to you, Steve. All right. So let's talk a little bit about his diet really quick. We're going to get into a steroid cycle, mobster. Yeah. So his listed stats, big Rami, five foot nine, five foot eight area. Contest size in the high 200s, 285 up to 295. Off-season, he was over 300 pounds. So he's an absolute beast of a bodybuilder with his stats. Not a guy you want to run into in a back alley, all right, <laughs> when he's in a bad mood. I'll put it that way. So nutrition-wise, it's not really complicated. From the stuff I've seen, 
the guy was eating a lot of good quality foods. Uh, he takes his diet very serious. We're talking eggs, sweet potatoes, rice, chicken breast. Then he adds fruit. Okay, we're seeing this a lot with bodybuilders today, especially in the Middle East bodybuilders. They're not afraid of fruit the, Amer the way Americans are. In his case, you know, pineapple. Why? Why pineapple? Pineapple is very water-based. It's very good also for the gut and digestion. So if you consume pineapple with your meal, it actually will help with digestion. So it's a great idea to use uh, things like pineapple, papaya. So we see Middle East bodybuilders are not afraid of fruit like other parts of the world. You also have fish in his diet and then those green veggies that are so elusive. And a lot of bodybuilders don't even consume uh, veggies. Uh, they're, they just it's just not part of their thing. They're like, ah, oh, veggies, you know, it's not going to help me build muscle. Well, veggies are very important because of the vitamins, minerals, the antioxidants and all that stuff. So it's essential. And then he also messes around with things like peanut butter, almond butter, protein shake here and there. So things like that. So he's trying to get as much protein as he can. Um, we're talking an absurd amount of protein in his diet. So let's talk about his steroid cycle. And one I'm of the things, one, yeah, go ahead, boss. I know okay. you, you love, you love the assignment. Jumping. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One, one very quick thing. Funny enough, in one of the uh, pre, uh, I think the Friday night interviews that were done, Rami, admit, uh, I can't remember the name of the athlete that was a previous athlete himself. He was interviewing and Rami come over and was being interviewed uh, on a Friday. And he actually turned around and said to him, he said, I, I have six meals a day. Rami, how would you get this amount of volume of food in? How would you manage it? For he says, I think I'd probably take the less, least, talking to the other athletes, I'd probably eat the least amount of sheer volume of food. And he actually said himself on camera, and I believe it's my genetics. So it's an interesting thing. There. I don't, dis don't disagree with a single thing you said in terms of his actual intake and what that would consist of. But Rami himself turned around and said that he is actually is not doing six meals a day. So the fella says, what, what do you say? Well, four meals, sometimes five. He says, but I think I eat the least amount of other athletes. And we know that the individual genetics and response to food is one of those things that applies here. So Rami responds to food and the healthy food that Steve just listed incredibly well. It's probably a little bit like myself. When people go, how big are you, Steve? You go, Ugh. and I say, I'm this 319 pound of at the moment. They think I'm like desperate Dan, a cartoon character eating that whole cows with the horns to get out of them high crust, something like this. And I go, no, I'm probably eating, you know, a little bit more than the average person, but not excessively so. That's down the lifestyle and genetics. And I think Rami's there as well in terms of what he said on camera, eating less meals, perhaps slightly bigger meals, but less meals. And it's his genetics response to the food is incredibly good. That is, if it's super healthy, he's getting the maximum nutrients out of it. And then it doesn't require 10,000 calories a day. It doesn't have to have six, seven meals a day. But yeah, let's get on to the steroid cycle, Steve, by all means, and, and see what we think. Maybe even if there's been any changes from last year and what we've discussed till this year. Back to you. Yeah, so, you know, basically, we're talking about nutrition. We have to talk about HGH and insulin. So if you're going to basically take advantage of these meals, it's very important to use both of these compounds. And when you use a lot of HGH, it affects your blood sugar it sends your blood sugar skyrocketing. So that's why the insulin is so important. So, you know, how much HGH is he using? You know, I would say on a lean day, he's running no more than eight IUs, probably, you know, up to 20 IUs or more even on certain days. So, 
very, very important that he's constantly getting HGH. That's another advantage he has being in the Middle East because HGH in the Middle East is going to be a lot cheaper and a lot more legit and high quality sure. than HGH you could get in the United States. I mean, his American counterparts are probably spending five, six times the amount of money on the HGH that they're getting, and it's not even dose good. So he's he's very fortunate to be in that part of the world. It gives him an built-in advantage. Now, when you're taking that HGH, like I said, your blood sugar skyrockets. You got to take that insulin to, to drive it back down. You take the insulin to drive it back down, then you have a big meal. You have one of his meals, you know, a very simple meal, you know, brown rice, veggies, protein, okay? And that gets partitioned into the muscle that allows him to grow, so when he was basically going through that phase, that growing phase where he put on 50, 75, even 100 pounds, mm. he was definitely using the HGH and insulin during that time. Uh, the coach he was working with was like, you know what, Big Remy, you have the genetics to blow up and, I'm, and you're going to follow my protocol. And in, in a year from now and two years from now, you're going to be a beast. And this is one of the, one of the ways that this is, this is one of the keys is the HGH and insulin using them properly. If you use insulin improperly, you're just going to get fat, but you have to use insulin properly and you have to have these genetics. You have to know how to eat. You have to meal time and you have to run a boatload of HGH with it. Otherwise you're wasting your time. Don't ever run insulin by itself. Huge, huge mistake. Another thing he would have ran, and this is something that bodybuilders today aren't afraid to do because you have access to aromatized inhibitors and lots of testosterone and they're not even scared to run long esters. Once you get closer to the show, you're going to run propionate. When you're away from the show, you're going to run anything. Those, those are the, those are the testosterones that they mess around with. Now, how much was he running? I mean, I've heard things up to 5,000 milligrams per week. I think that's ridiculous. I don't believe it. I think it was closer to 1,500 or 2,000 milligrams a week myself. Yes. The next steroid is absolutely mandatory for, for the pro bodybuilders to use. Absolutely mandatory. If they're not using this steroid, they're not going anywhere, and that's Trembolone. And how much Trembolone? There's been rumors up to 3,000 milligrams per week. Again, I think that's ridiculous. You got to remember yeah. they're in the Middle East. They're getting access to the best steroids in the world. They don't have to run these excessive dosages. They're not running underdose stuff. I really think he's probably getting, you know, on some weeks, he's hiking it up to maybe 1,500, maybe even 2,000 milligrams per week. It's crazy. It's a crazy dosage. I would die on that dosage. I would be miserable <laughs> on that dosage. They're not running it, though. They're not running it, though, long term. They're running it for maybe a few weeks, and then they back off on the dose. So for me, even running 250 milligrams a week of trend makes me miserable on the stuff. But I mean, these guys are doing what they have to do. And again, trend with the HGH, with the insulin, oh my gosh, that is one of the keys to getting huge. You have to run Trembolone if you're a professional bodybuilder at that level. Every single guy on that list is using Trembolone. That's a fact. If you're not going to use Trembolone, you're not going to make it into the top 10 Mr. Olympia. It's just not going to happen. The last one I want to talk about, I'm going to bring in Mobster for his, for his thoughts on, on is Equipoise. Equipoise is a really popular one today as well because it's a very mild steroid. You can take it, it'll boost, it, you know, it, it does all the things that steroids do, okay? But it doesn't aromatize 
like crazy. It doesn't give you androgenic side effects like crazy. It's just a good mild steroid. So they can run a lot of it and it's not going to mess with them. It's not going to give them the side effects that other steroids will give them. And it's cheap. You know, it's a cheap steroid and it does the job. So I've heard things up to 3000 milligrams. Again, that's excessive. I think it's probably about half that. You know, he was running somewhere between 1200, maybe 1500 milligrams a week. So, Monster, you know, I'll bring you in here and tell us a little bit about some of the other steroids these guys are messing around with today. I'll touch on that, Steve. If we're still talking about a bulking cycle here, and of course, what happens a great deal, although these were supposed to have come from a trainer oxygen gym in terms of the two cycles that we talk about in a previous article, regards the, the one that made him close to 300 pounds and the one that he uh, used uh, prior to his first uh, New York read, which in terms of actual qualities, his quads probably look the best, uh, is that these happen a lot. So we get the, was, was they bullshitting us? Was the amounts exaggerated possibly? Because they might have wanted to give the impression to other athletes that this is what you want to take if you want to beat Rami. And then of course, as, as is always the case, I would literally just see the fella standing in front of me, see his CV, know that he worked at the gym, to know 100% that it was definitely someone that had worked with Rami and it was 100% from his mouth that this is supposed to be what Remy was taking. Uh, but this happens all the time. And guys, the reason for that is quite simple because everybody's convinced that if they do the same cycle as Remy took, and he went from 200 to 280 pounds on this cycle, then I, if I do this cycle, I would go from 200 to 280 pounds. And unfortunately, that's not the case. When Steve talks about the lower numbers, it's because he believes this is what someone with Remy's genetics, with Remy's frame, with Remy's background, with the uh, support, et cetera, he's getting in the Middle East, this is how he grew. So I, I agree with the numbers that Steve's thrown out. One of the drugs on here, which we're going to get into now, is Decadurablin. Uh, a personal favorite of mine, my sus decas back in the cycle back in the day, is still one of my favorite cycles, especially for bulking. And forget the healing side. That really is almost nine times out of ten, you're talking about healing stuff in terms of the potential for deca seems to be mostly in studies of medical uses. And if you're pounding the granny out of your joints, if you're working like a crazy guy that wants to win the Mr. Olympia, the, the stress on your joints, you're probably going to get more tissue repair from the HGH that Steve's already mentioned than you are from the DECA, if at all. The suggested number at the time was 2,000 milligrams. Like Steve already said, I, I, the top end for me would be 1,000 if I ever went that high. And I suspect it was probably like that. I'd actually probably want to use a little bit, five, 600 maximum. And they didn't even use that back in the day. So I agree. agree. We can half some of the numbers that's talked about here. Diana Bowl. Diana Bowl, breakfast of champions. Uh, value for per pound that you're going to put on the weight, et cetera, the ballooning up, the water retention. And again, we're talking about a bulking cycle here. It's one of the cheapest drugs for the return that you're going to get. Of course, it's an oral, and you have to watch that kind of stuff. And if you look here, you've only got two orals on this list, really. Everything else is an injectable. But like Steve says, it's over-the-counter pharma quality, and Christ, it's probably being posted for your letterbox. Free, don't ask no questions, just take it and get on with it. Anadrol. I mean, the number here suggested is really, really high. And I think Steve says properly, when they talk about these cycles, sometimes it's for relatively short periods of time. Some of it's down to your ability genetically to be able to handle these drugs. There's no damn way on earth I would want to be running this drug for months at a time. But the suggested leaked cycle 
amount was 300 milligrams a day. Steve will tell you the same as what I will. Both the 100 milligrams of Debo is high and 300 milligrams a day suggested, I was actually going back down to 100 here, Steve. Again, if you've got the genetics of a big Ramy, perhaps never having done any drugs before when you was a fisherman and joining the gym and, and being one of the guys that was helping out in the gym, and then I put you on 100 milligrams a day with these other drugs of Anadrol, you're going to blow up. If you've got your genetics, you're going to blow up. So the idea that he was on 300 milligrams with all these other drugs seems to me to be excessive. It, one of it is just a too big of a hammer for that small of a nail. His response is going to be huge with what we would consider next to nothing. So the, the idea of these numbers is perhaps what we think someone like Rami needed to get that big. But if you've seen him at 200 pounds before he, he, he blew up, he was a big guy. He looked like a big muscular guy. He could see the, the muscle bellies. And so it didn't take ridiculous five, six, seven, eight, nine, so we're talking about 11, 12 grams, 13 grams a week here, Steve. Yeah, 13 grams um, of just the test and FNA and equipoise and DECA. 13 grams a week, 13,000 milligrams to get into two. I don't think so. So the numbers are probably over, overstated, uh, possibly just to say for the effect of uh, playing with the psyche of those people that are going to read this and maybe compete against him. What I do agree with is uh, there's a, a suggestion here of a myostatin GDF8 blocking peptide, something you and I have talked about before, both in pre-shows and previous podcasts, and I'm sure you've discussed it in other podcasts with Ricky V, etc. is the idea that the Middle Eastern guys, especially with their pharma drugs, etc., are having access, better access than Europe, better access than the UK, and better access than the States. And certainly, as you've just said it a few minutes ago, at a much lower uh, over-the-counter cost to peptides, and specifically here, something like GDF8, if it works, if it's effective, as an addition to a cycle that's already going great, guys, it's already blowing you up, to uh, uh, inhibit uh, myostatin and, and essentially keep you growing, keep you recovering. It's it's going to be one of those things that doesn't necessarily uh, blow you up in and of itself, because of training, you're breaking down muscle fibers, you're, you're stressing the body, but it stops that degradation. It stops the going backwards. In other words, it's going to kind of allow you to, with the volume that we talked about training earlier on, to overtrain and recover from overtraining. Whereas without it, you might see a difference in the physique. I will want to, I do want to touch on Steve before we finish on, on the whole cycle stuff. Um, and we know this because of the Chad's reputation with regards to his athletes and the difference that he seems to make. There's a few things out there that get discussed. And I think, and obviously we're talking about pre-competition here rather than uh, bulking up through the year and, and getting back into Mr. Olympia's shape. And that's two things. One, which doesn't really get discussed that much. I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on it by any stretch of imagination. It's so-called plasma expanders. In other words, something that allowed the muscle to be filled out and, the, and, and what might be euphemistically called carbon up. So it's plenty of water and uh, carbohydrates in the muscle cells. And there's no doubt looking at uh, Rami that that wasn't an issue. Certainly looked big and full. The other thing will, of course, be use of diuretics. And we know that because of the uh, post-Olympia interviews that have been done with a now retired Ronnie Coleman discussing uh, stuff that he did with Kevin to lose water. And obviously later on, the whole laying in bed, needing to go to hospital, drinking a gallon of water and then coming on stage, looking a little bit warty, sweating it out and winning the Mr. Olympia. So we've discussed in other uh, shows of top pros cycles, the use of diuretics, 
And one of the issues is, for example, mistiming. And this is where I think perhaps arguably uh, this year, Rami's one small mistake that may have had him looking a little bit tighter and comparable in that particular way in terms of condition with uh, Brandon. And that is possibly the slight mistiming of uh, the diuretic use this year. And uh, again, arguably, one thing that they did do correctly is they didn't follow up by throwing more diuretics because then we would have had issues off stage. And I've already seen interviews uh, with Rami and R Rami on video cameras doing uh, press and uh, photo shoots, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not the case here. So what we're looking at is that they, they did, in my opinion, use diuretics, but for whatever reason, he didn't respond in the time scale that they would have liked. So he didn't quite get that condition. Again, I'll say what I said earlier on. So the last five minutes of the show, when that last bit of water came out, when he started to look like a Mr. Olympia, literally when the condition that we would have liked to have seen appeared, but they didn't fuck up by throwing more directs ahead of time and, you know, messing his, messing his mineral balances up and having him cramp on stage or anything like that. So maybe that's one thing they need to adjust. They literally play around with his water next year keeping more training, as I'd previously discussed, slightly less opportunities and distractions, uh, as huge as that might be, and have him focus, for example, have three months, get as many opportunities as possible, and then start his build-up to the Olympia three months after the last one, and make that like a date in your diary, and then adjust in the timing, or ever so slightly, the amount of diuretics used to dry him out, and just have that tiny bit of water from under the skin disappear and for us to see the grainy look, the condition look that a lot of pundits, ourselves included, would like to see in, in our Mr. Olympia. And if he does that and brings that, uh, I think next year's argument is negated as far as who else could have won. It'll be Rami and then everybody else, Steve. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't like make predictions of this. I always laugh on the social media guys make predictions ahead of the Mr. Olympia as if as if they're in person watching these guys, you know, train in their underwear and stuff. It's like, we, you know, we don't know. It's really hard. It's hard to predict. Um, that's a nice thing about, you know, this sort of thing. It's unpredictable. And we could have easily seen Brandon Curry win. I mean, it was oh, a yeah. really, really tight. It was a really, really tight. Friday. So we'll have to see what happens next year. I'm not sure Brandon Curry will come back. So it'll be a question. I want to see, you know, the top, the top three next year. That's going to be interesting, you know, is, you know, what's going to happen with those guys in the top yeah. three, are they going to come back? You know, are they going to, are they going to fall off? So it's really, really interesting what's going on. Brandon Curry is, is you know, he's around Rami's age. Um, he's a year or two older. Um, he's, he, he would be, he's going to be, uh, about 39, uh, next, he'll be about 39, depending when the Mr. Olympia is done. If it's done in the late summer, he'll be 39 next year. So around Mr. Olympia time. So it'd be interesting to see, he'll be almost 40 actually. So it'd be interesting if someone who's almost 40 can still, can still do it. I think big Rami though, he's got three, four years ahead of him where he I can, yes. Yes. He, can, he can win it. He can win it. But we got a lot of young guns coming. We got a lot That's of young guns coming. Steve. Watch yeah, out. I was, gonna, yeah. I was going to agree with you 100% there, Steve. The, the two, the, one of the other changing the subject slightly there, and I've seen this already mentioned on podcast, is that they say that the two young guns, specifically Hunter Labrador and Nick Walker, uh, 
their game in the next two to three years, their potential, one of the things that's been said specifically was Hunter improves and gets a little bit dry. And he had the same issue with the Friday night uh, pre-judging followed by the Saturday evening show that he dried out, he, his belly flattened down, for example. Nick came from the Arnold just a few, three, three weeks previously into the Olympia and still managed a fifth place. That's a lot of competitions in a short period of time, but fortunately young enough. Those two young guns, specifically Hunter was mentioned as a potential Mr. Olympia, a future Mr. Olympia. So, yeah, it's one of those things, Steve. We've actually, Tony Manor said that in the last few years of the Mr. Olympia, the average age of the winner has been creeping up from late 30s to early 40s. Uh, and if you go back to Arnold's time, for example, you were talking about late 20s. Well, late 20s is where we're talking about Hunter and Nick, mid 25, 26, 27 between the two of them. So, yeah, potentially. Yeah, I think Hunter says he'll be 30 years old next year. So, believe it or yeah, not. So yeah. 31, 32 could be at so his absolute peak. Nick could yeah. probably add another, I mean, his condition could improve ever so slightly again in the next couple of years. It makes the competition a lot tighter. Had he been in the U.S. ahead of time, arguably can't add that much more muscle to his frame. He used to be a 212 athlete. Brandon, will the fire still be there? So let's just take this top five again. That's Rami at number one, Brandon at number two, Hattie at number three, Hunter at number four, and Nick at number five. I'm going to say that next year, if Brandon completes, if the heart hasn't gone out of him, and I don't think that it has, we haven't had a chance to find out yet, we're looking at the same top five, but whether it be in the same order or whether we'll see Hunter and Nick add something to their visits, which they're, younger, they're young enough to do, whether Hattie can dry out a little bit more, whether Brandon can add a little tiny bit more quality to his legs, and whether Rami can bring that condition that we all want to see, that we, we we kind of almost saw everything he had to give last year. It, I think the top five is going to be the same, but the numbers are going to move around. I don't know that we're going to bring anybody else in there into that, uh, regardless of how good six, seven and eight are. I don't think we're going to be seeing anybody else come into that mix and change this up. So especially with this, as I say, two, three years, I agree with you, Rami. Brandon, if he's got the heart, had he the same? And then Hunter and Nick will improve. They will improve because of their age. It's just a given. Uh, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, we'll have to see. That's that's definitely, there's going to be lots of things that happen in the next year. There's going to be, you know, we saw in the past year, we're going to see people dying. We're going to see people with controversies. We're gonna, there's all kinds of different things that can happen. So it's really exciting. And we'll definitely, a year from now, I'm sure that we will do a post- 2022 show as well so all right mobster great show take us into the disclaimer all right so just before that and something that's worth mentioning guys ready for the next show that we're talking about mentioned by rami mentioned by the winner of the classic physique is george peterson we're going to be covering this guy he's very popular with the other athletes so he's in our next show that's not so much as a clue as a giveaway and a disclaimer, as always, please note, we are not doctors, and the opinions that we offer in these podcasts are hours and hours alone. It is our view and based on our experience and views on the topic, which comes from many years. Podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only, the freedom of speech and the first amendment.